From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later today, Patrick Leahy of Vermont. He's been a senator for almost 50 years. He'll describe how on January 6th, when senators took refuge from the mob attacking the Capitol, they prepared to complete the work of counting the electoral votes in their underground bunker until Senator Leahy insisted that they should wait until they could return to the Senate chamber. We'll explain why later in the show. His new book is The Road Taken. But first, the Republicans' priorities if they take control of the House after the November elections. Chris Lehman will report in a minute. The political landscape for the fall is looking a lot better since Joe Biden signed that big climate and health care bill and abolished a lot of student debt. And things are looking a lot worse for the Republicans since the Supreme Court abolished constitutional protection for abortion rights. Now it looks like the Democrats may hold the Senate and do significantly better in the House races than had been predicted. The Cook Political Report now estimates the likely Republican margin in the House after the, the election may be as little as 10 seats instead of 30 or 40, which had been the prediction a few months ago. But 10 seats still means the Republicans are likely to control the House when they meet again next January. What are their priorities there? For comment and analysis, we turn to Chris Lehman. He's the nation's new DC bureau chief and the former editor of The Baffler and The New Republic, former DC correspondent for The New York Observer, senior editor at CQ Weekly. And he's held positions at New York Magazine, Washington Post, Book World, and Newsday. He's the author of two books, most recently, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. He'll be doing regular segments on this podcast with a view from DC, what you need to know that the mainstream media isn't covering. Chris Lehman, welcome to the program. Thanks much, John. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to be at The Nation. Well, it's still a long time until Election Day in November, but Republicans have been planning what they will do if they gain control of the House. What do we know about their priorities beyond going after Hunter Biden? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, you know, for a long time, obviously, uh, the GOP has weaponized its House majority to conduct these kind of high profile oversight media spectacles. You, you probably remember Trey Gowdy's uh, grilling of Hillary Clinton over the Benghazi affair. Devin Nunez used his seat on the Intelligence Committee to uh, basically slow walk anything uh, having to do with any hints of. Um, collusion, to use an infamous word from the 2016 election cycle um, between the Trump campaign and, and Russia and other oligarchic types. <laughs> and, um, you know, you would expect coming into a new majority that the Republicans would be laying plans to have endless forensic interrogations of what's on Hunter Biden's laptop or how Merrick Garland came to stage the uh, search of Mar-a-Lago for classified sensitive documents. However, there was a recent um, item in a newsletter from Politico 
indicating that one of the top priorities is going to be tar targeting the National Labor Relations Board and also the Department of Labor uh, for intensive grilling from the Education and Labor Committee. Uh, Virginia Fox, who is an old hard right, actually pre-Trump, kind of red meat uh, Republican, told Politico that she jokes that they're going to be holding up to two hearings a day. And it's an interesting, uh, I think, window onto what's really at stake in this midterm cycle. Uh, the Republicans understand all too well that, um, you know, their donor base is obviously heavy corporate and very pro-business and regressive on labor issues. And one of the really striking things in the Biden administration thus far is the NLRB has been really aggressive and good from a you know standpoint of democrat social democratic politics in sanctioning new union drives and getting the uh, drive to organize starbucks and uh, amazon this sort of new cohort of service workers who had previously not achieved union recognition are, are getting attention let's just review that the the national labor relations board has been around since the mid-30s one of the great achievements right. of the new deal that's the independent agency right. that runs elections where workers get to vote on whether they want a union or not. Right. You mentioned the famous Staten Island warehouse of, of right. Amazon as the most recent case, and it protects workers trying to organize unions from unfair retaliation. We record in LA. In LA just last week, the NLRB said Starbucks cannot give right. raises to workers who don't join the union and deny them to workers who do. And the Republicans have been after the NLRB for a long time. When there's a Republican president, they don't yeah. nominate people. To, it's right. NLRB. Well, explain how the NLRB is run. Who, who's in yeah. charge? Well, you know, the executive branch is in charge, but it's interesting because once you have um, a lead counsel on the board, it functions a little like the Supreme Court, you know, and that's why the NLRB has been able to intervene in these high-profile labor struggles on the behalf of workers. Is Abruzzo the the head? Jennifer she, Abruzzo. Let's yes, underline that name. Jennifer, a very yes, important yes. person. You know, you don't hear her bandit her name bandied out uh, much on cable TV or whatever. But yeah, she's she has done really good work in transforming the landscape of organizing and the NLRB, thanks to the National Labor Relations Act, which secured the right to collective bargaining in the workplace, is the means by which workers can safely organize without fear of retaliation, as you cited in the Starbucks case in, in LA. So it is really a pillar of you know worker self-organization and social democracy. And it's interesting, um, just today I was I saw a Gallup poll showing that American support for unions is at the highest level it's been since 1965. 71% wow. of uh, wow. respondents in this poll said they are pro-union. And so one of the interesting things, you know, if you think about the stakes of this election cycle, and, you know, there are a lot of uh, self-styled savants in the democratic policy world who champion this cause of popularism, which I'm skeptical of, but... <laughs> In this case, here's something that looks pretty goddamn popular. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and it's interesting and instructive that it hasn't, you know, rocketed up to the, the top of Democratic priorities. You know, I think the party is counting on Trump to be a divisive figure, as yeah. he always is, and to sort of 
lie back and, and let the midterms kind of wash over them rather than putting forward an aggressive pro-worker case, which, you know, the elements are there. There is Biden's NLRB, which is a real achievement of this administration. Yes, um, and, l- and let me just emphasize there that for couple of decades, the NLRB yeah. was really pretty much absent. The Irrelevant, general counsel yeah. and the five-person board are nominated by the president. So when there's a Republican right. president, if there's an now, opening... Now, Trump's NLRB was awful, you know, and so <laughs> Biden had, you know, first to un- the challenge of undoing all the terrible things, the pro, you know, management crap that came out of, of Trump's NLRB. And then once Jennifer Abruzzo was in, she was able to, you know, build off that. And when there's a Democratic president, but the Republicans control the Senate, the Senate has to confirm nominees and they can block uh, appointees and leave uh, the the NLRB without a quorum, which indeed was the case for, what, a decade or something like that. And then... Yeah, and another side effect of all this is the NLRB has been grievously underfunded. It's, you know, taken on much more work now with this new wave of organizing. And, you know, still in all the continuing budget resolutions, Democrats in Congress and and the Biden White House haven't given it the budget it needs. There's another continuing resolution that's the cycle begins in October. And I think it would be really smart politics for the Democratic leadership in Congress and the Biden White House to say, look, you know, this the Republicans want to go after your right to democracy in the workplace. We're going to set aside a lot of money for this crucial agency that has done a lot to vindicate your rights as as workers. To me, it's just simple politics. You know, just again, look at that 71% number. That is, you know, that should have Democratic strategists salivate. But as we know, there are problems in the Democratic Party, right? (laughs) They haven't really been a pro-worker party since the height of New Deal policymaking. And a lot of the work of the new Democrats from Bill Clinton onward has been to undo the historic alliance between organized labor and the Democratic parties. So you're in this awkward position. We were talking about Starbucks earlier and Howard Schultz, the aggressively you know, union-busting CEO, was touted as a potential presidential candidate it is recently as 2020. And Hillary Clinton said that she was prepared to make him her labor secretary oh, wow. <laughs> after the, you know, when she thought she was going to win in 2016. So that's a big issue. You know, you've got a donor base in the Democratic Party that is also not pro-labor. There's something called the Workplace Choice and Responsibility Act before Congress. You could always know a piece of crappy legislation by the euphemistic names they give. <laughs> it's a Workplace Choice and Flexibility Act. Sorry, I'm not up on my new economy jargon. Um okay. And, uh, you know, that is basically, speaking of California, a federal codification of Prop 223, which creates all sorts of obstacles for employees in the so-called gig economy to organize and to achieve uh, fair wages and hours and benefits. And the co-sponsor of that is Henry Cuellar, who is famously Nancy Pelosi's handpicked candidate for uh, the 28th district in Texas over a much more progressive candidate who... He got a lot of attention, and properly so, because he's anti-abortion. Um, the only anti-abortion I, Democrat left I, in the House. Pretty much. And uh, and you look at the Workplace Choice and Flexibility Act, and you think, this is the kind of choice that Henry Cuellar <laughs> is in favor of? Anyway. Republican leaders in the House have already released this, uh, a, a letter with a formal complaint against the NLRB. Yep. 
that the NLRB has, quote, colluded with labor unions to tilt election results in right. favor of unionization at Starbucks and Amazon. Uh, how can they make this case? Well, you know, the Republican Party, especially in matters of elections, are they're prone to conspiratorial fantasy. <laughs> Good point. I mean, so um, I think the NLRB arguably is doing its job <laughs> in ensuring the rights of workers to organize. Republicans are just obviously unhappy with the results. Um, and so they're going to claim there are conflicts of interest. They're going to claim there are improprieties in how the NLRB you know, conducts its business. But you're a historian. If you look across the broad sweep of what the NLRB was founded to do, it's pretty much what it's doing now. You can't really find anything in its legislative mandate that is a bright line difference from securing the, the rights of Starbucks workers to organize. In your new piece at thenation.com, you make the point that the Republicans are not going to run on taking down the NLRB. They're, they right. they want to conceal this. And one of their big issues, you say, is going to be the new IRS funding that the Democrats have right. approved, $80 billion more for the IRS. I saw right. that in an interview at Fox, Chuck Grassley uh, uh, my old the, senator, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> raised the yeah. specter of an IRS strike force quote that goes in with AK-15s already loaded, <laughs> ready to shoot some small business person in Iowa. Close quote. Is that a harbinger <laughs> of what kind of uh, discourse we're going to have in the fall? Uh, I think we've got it already. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, speaking of conspiratorial fantasy, there you go. I mean, actually the. IRS is another grievously underfunded agency under Trump. It, it basically stopped auditing earners over $400,000 a year. And, um, you know, it has a workforce that's aging and, and needs to be replenished. And, you know, the actual language in the IRA legislation, you know, is to direct these new auditors at people who are not small businessmen, who are not bartenders and waiters. Uh, you know, there was also a leaked tape from a GOP fundraiser recently where Steve Wynn, who is as corrupt a figure as you can imagine, he's a Las Vegas or former casino mogul um, who's now facing a Justice Department in investigation for alleged violations of the Foreign Agents Act and um, a slew of lawsuits alleging, let's just say, misconduct, including sexual harassment during his tenure. But he, of course, told Ronna McDaniel, the head of the RNC, that given the new electoral realities before the Republicans, they should start cutting ads, claiming that the IRS is going to go after bartenders and waiters. And to me, again, this is just like staring you right in the face. Like, I want, you know, whatever the Democratic equivalent of not Ilya Adwater, because he was racist and awful, but, you know, someone with a bit of imagination and brio <laughs> to uh, cut ads in response saying, like, the Republican Party is wanting to do Steve Wynn's bidding and demonize you, workers, and lie about what the IRS is up to. It's It seems like a fat pitch over the inside of the plate to me. But again, as I was saying earlier, there are these institutional problems within the Democratic Party where um, their commitment to issues of economic justice is conditional, let's just say. 
Democrats need some imagination and brio in defending unions and collecting taxes. Chris Lehman, he's the nation's new D.C. bureau chief. He'll be talking regularly on this podcast about what you need to know that the mainstream media is not covering. Chris, thanks for this report. We'll be speaking again soon. Great. My pleasure, John. And you can read Chris Lehman, of course, at thenation.com. Now it's time to talk with Patrick Leahy. Of course, he is the senior senator from Vermont and the longest serving member of the Senate. After almost 50 years there, he's announced he will not run for a ninth term this fall. He's just written a memoir, The Road Taken. We reached him today in Washington, D.C. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Senator Patrick Leahy, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. This is a great program, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on it. Well, I learned from your memoir that in your first campaign for the Senate in 1974, both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden were part of the story. Tell us about that. Bernie ran ran as a Liberty Union Party, as as a socialist and a third party candidate. Now, remember, Vermont was the only state in the union that never elected a, a Democrat to the Senate. And certainly never looked at any senator as young as, as I. And so uh, I had asked him why he was, why he was uh, running, because he was taking mostly votes for me as a candidate on the left. And, and we got along fine. And he said, well, you can't win anyway. So I, <laughs> I get my name known and, and he got 5% of the vote. And I, I won by about one or two percent of the vote. And uh, Joe, Joe Biden was sent by the Democratic Party to come up and just speak at a Democratic gathering. Well, the Democratic gathering, we probably had a dozen people. At it. <laughs> uh, he was going on from there to another state. And but we got along fine because we were the two youngest people there. And uh, in fact, the press didn't even mention that I was there. They mentioned that the youngest senator and uh, Joe Biden was there. And over the years, we've always uh, teased about that. But it was it was nice to meet him. And they uh, it was very open, very friendly, talked with everybody, remembered everybody's name. And then when I got elected, I came in and we were the two youngest members of the U.S. Senate. We were we were the kids, and I think that bonded bonded us more than anything else. And <clears throat> and how different was Bernie in 1974? Was he giving the same stump speech he gives today? Income inequality, oh, yeah. corporate Listen, power. I, I can. Uh, I, I told him on the campaign trail if he got laryngitis or anything, I'd give his speech for him because. <laughs> <laughs> I memorized it. Yeah, it's basically the same speech, and I'll give him credit for that. He's he's always stayed uh, consistent, uh, and the I think people in Vermont uh, grown to appreciate him giving the speeches, and uh, so we we get along fine. 
Well, today we think of Vermont, of course, as the land of you and Bernie, of Ben and Jerry, deep blue. It's the state where Joe Biden got the biggest margin of any state, 66%. But of course, as you say, when you started out in Vermont politics in the 70s, it was not a democratic state. No. Uh, how and why did Vermont change from red to blue? Well, I think a lot of us can take some credit spending time exposing people to different, different viewpoints. We've also had uh, new people moving in, Younger people want to listen to other ideas. And also, I think Vermont has sort of taken things for, for granted that they'd be Republican. I remember uh, we had our last election, we elected a, a Republican for governor, a Democrat for lieutenant governor. And so there's still tickets played. In fact, since uh, uh, 1960, when Phil Hoff and the first Democrat in modern times to win as governor. We've got a Democratic governor, next one a Republican, next one a Democrat, next one a Republican. It's gone literally back and forth uh, each time. And but I remember when I was a young student at a at St. Michael's College at that time, all male, uh, predominantly Catholic, and I'm out not old enough to vote but uh, campaign for John Kennedy. Hmm. And people are telling me, well, we don't like Nixon, but you can't expect us to vote for a Catholic <laughs> uh, for president. Uh, I thought that uh, a memory I had when 14 years later, I ran for the US Senate. But it was, I think it was the John Kennedy, uh, Phil Hoff and others started a change. And then it's, it's been individuals. Now we vote more the individual than the party. Well, today we think of the Senate as one of our biggest uh, political problems. It's an undemocratic body where small states are wildly overrepresented, states like Wyoming and Vermont. Vermont. It's a body with even more uh, undemocratic rules. Of course, the filibuster that has made it almost impossible to pass legislation favored by big majorities of Americans. Uh, is this the way you see the Senate today? Well, I, I wanted to think of the Senate as being the conscience of the nation. And at times it has been. Obviously it wasn't uh, in the early years of segregation, but with the push of, of um, Lyndon Johnson and some key Republicans, that changed. Now, when I came there, Republicans and Democrats worked together. And I'll give you one example. And I talked to both of these senators as a young senator and listened to them. When um, the Republican leader of the Senate and Barry Goldwater, who was Mr. Conservative, went down to the uh, to the White House to tell Richard Nixon he had to leave. Now that was Hugh Scott, uh, who was also Mr. Republican. Yeah. And I asked them what they thought about it. And they said, we took no joy in that, none whatsoever. But we thought for the sake of the country and for the integrity of the Senate, we had to do it. And the fact that 
we were doing it, uh, the president would have to listen far more than if it came from the Democratic side. And I, I've never forgotten that. And I, then I saw people working things out together, both parties, Bob Doe and George Mitchell would meet two or three times a day as Republican Democratic leader. Uh, certainly disagreed on issues, but said, let's, let's bring it to a vote. Uh, not a filibuster, but a vote. We'll have a debate, may go on for two or three days, and then we'll vote. That's the way the Senate should be. In fact, one of the reasons I wrote my book, uh, The Road Taken, is to show the arc of what the Senate was when I came there. Obviously, as an idealistic 34-year-old former prosecutor. But to see how well it works when it works well, and how badly and polarized it's become. And then the uh, shocking aspect of January 6th, and a realization that there are large segments of the US population that don't get their news from factual sources. Uh, they get made up news on, uh, on the internet or elsewhere or by partisan groups and how politicized we've come and the fact that people will find a source of news that appeals to them, not having read any history, not understanding it. During the insurrection and the mobs going through the Capitol, they were claiming, well, the Constitution is invited in there. I was thinking, have you ever read the Constitution? <laughs> if you have, find me the place. Find me the place in the Constitution that says a mob bent on destruction, putting up a noose to hang the Vice President Mike Pence. Show me in the Constitution where that's encouraged. I want to get back to January 6th in a minute, but a few things before that. You were on the Judiciary Committee for a long time. 1991, Joe Biden was chair of the Judiciary Committee. You were a member. Clarence Thomas was nominated. And Anita Hill testified against him. You quizzed both Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas very carefully about their testimony. It's still on C-SPAN, very easy to find. I wonder, thinking about those hearings today, whether you think they were handled right? Well, I felt that I handled it right because I asked them both questions and then I stated publicly that I believed Anita Hill and I did not believe Clarence Thomas. And that was a major reason why I voted against him. It wasn't uh, philosophical reasons, but I felt he had not told the truth. I felt she had. And everybody should have been able to make up their own, own mind on that, turned into histrionics and uh, Federalist Society pushing for Clarence Thomas and other right-wing groups. I, I think it was very bad. I, I think um, people should have listened to that. I wish there had been more witnesses, or at least one more witness who would back what uh, Anita Hill was saying. But I made it very clear that I believed her. And when did you first become aware of Donald Trump? When did you first realize he could become president? Well, I'd seen him at events, the correspondence dinner and things like that. I'd heard a lot about him and seemed to be kind of a make-believe world. But as I watch 
him just piling on one misstatement after another and people accepting it. I thought, you know, if he would make some misstatement, the press seemed to feel, well, we, we have to say that at such, such a time, Hillary Clinton didn't have her facts right. Well, she may have, that may have been once, they would have to balance that every time against his thousand uh, yeah. misstatements of fact. And I, I really worried about that. And I saw Hillary Clinton, somebody that those of us who served her in the Senate knew her before as first lady, knew that in private, and she not only an extraordinarily intelligent person, very humorous, very down to earth, and it's almost like she was being controlled in uh, what she said. And I felt he was going to might win. Now, I've had interesting encounters with him, one especially the Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill started a program that every St. Patrick's Day, they'd have a luncheon for Republicans and Democrats, usually with an Irish name, and the president would come. And it actually made a lot of sense. People could just forget party and go along. Well, I'm standing there with Enda Kenny, who was at that time the prime minister of Ireland. Donald Trump comes in and he says, oh, I see you're here with my good friend, Pat. Well, we call him Patrick uh, today. Great senator, wonderful man. He's climbing in the back. I'm kind of looking at him like, I think we'd met maybe once. And, uh, oh, we just, you know, my neighbor from Vermont, wonderful, wonderful leader in the Senate, and walks off. Prime Minister is watching, turns to me, says, well, now, Pat, do you suppose he has any idea who you are? And I said, no, he doesn't. (laughs) Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. In 2017, Al Franken, the senator from Minnesota, one of the leading liberals of the Senate, was pressured to resign after a conservative talk radio host accused him of having forced an unwanted kiss on her 10 years earlier. And then other women joined in with complaints of unwanted hugs. Uh, The campaign to force him out was led by a New York Democrat, Kirsten Gillibrand, who was planning to run for president. In retrospect, what do you think about the campaign to pressure Al Franken to resign? Well, a number of people had signed a letter raising questions. I was probably the last one to to sign. I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders and others were urging us to sign it. And after about a day or so, I said, no, take my name back off. I called out and said, uh, no, that was a mistake. The matter is before the Senate Ethics Committee. You should have had a hearing. You have both Republicans and Democrats on the Ethics Committee. Let them make the decision. He said he appreciated that. He would keep my confidence. I said, no, no, I'm going to send you a letter saying there was a mistake to sign it. It should have been heard by the Ethics Committee. And you have my permission to release the letter saying I made a mistake. And and he did. You know, we've been friends. He's one of the brightest people I, I know served in, in the Senate. He was on the Judiciary Committee, although not a lawyer, but he would come better prepared than many of the lawyers on the Judiciary Committee. I don't know what the Ethics Committee, what they would have decided, but he did not have due process and he should have. Okay, January 6th, really the dramatic 
culmination of your uh, memoir, The Road Taken, you report that when you and the rest of the senators had taken refuge in a secure, undisclosed location, the Senate prepared to convene in a special session in that bunker. Tell us about that. Well, you know, under the, under the rules of the Senate, we can vote to meet anywhere. I think about the only time we haven't met in the Capitol was uh, after 9-11. We went to New York and met in the building where the first Congress had met just to show support from Republicans and Democrats to New York and against the, the terrorists. So technically, we could do it. I stood up and I said, no, I got really heated. Uh, I said, I'm the dean of the Senate. I've been here the longest. No, I don't want to do that. It may take them three or four or five or six hours to reopen the Senate chamber by the time the bomb-sniffing dogs came through and everything. But let's wait. Let's wait. We're here with six-year terms. Let's wait and then go back where the American public can see us. We owe it to the American public to see us, whether we agree with what happened or not. And I got a standing ovation from Republicans and Democrats. People agreed afterward. They said, of course, there's a thing to do. We owe it to the American people to see us. Patrick Leahy's new memoir is titled The Road Taken. Senator, thank you for fighting the good fight in the Senate for almost 50 years. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. And I look forward to being back home in Vermont very, very soon. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.